Revelation chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm curious, how many of y'all remember ABC's Wide World of Sports? few of you. Less hands every service. It's so funny. Uh, lots of hands at the 8 a.m. service. Not, so, not as many at the 9.45, but at 11.30, I thought there'd be three of you there. So you guys got that beat, but uh, yeah. So ABC's Wide World of Sports. Anybody remember the catchphrase? Thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, right? And <clears throat> they had uh, a video sequence, they had a video example, as they said, the agony of defeat. You know, they, they, they had to have the illustration, and it was a snow jumper, a ski, you know, ski jumper, who, who crashed on his way down the, the, the slope there, and he topples over the edge, and he just sort of rolls. True story, by the way, this guy didn't know for years that he was on Wide World of Sports and that his crash had, had, was famous. You know, he was some Yugoslavian skier and, uh, and he just, you know, after the Olympics, he just went back to a normal life working in a foundry, had no idea that for 20 some odd years that he was known worldwide as, you know, Mr. Agony of Defeat Man, but he was. Well, in 2006, there was another Olympian who suffered the agony of defeat. Her name was Lindsay uh, Jacobellis. Um, and um, she was competing in her first Olympic Games, and she made it all the way to the gold medal event through all the preliminaries, uh, you know, the prelims and so on, and now she's in the main event. She is, she is snowboarding in the snowboard cross final, um, and she, in the final stretch, she had a 50-yard lead over her nearest opponent, uh, and she only had one jump left, and at that moment... Lindsay Jacobellis pulled an Atlanta Falcons. She pulled a cast of La La Land. She, she pulled a mainstream media in the first two hours of the presidential election. What did she do? Well, she celebrated too early is what she did. And in, she, she did this jump, you know, just to kind of celebrate. And it threw off balance. And she ended up crashing down. She lost the race. Well, I tell you that story by way of introduction because last week we saw another group of people who celebrated too early. Uh, we saw the people of the nations and the tongues and the tribes of the tribulation, um, and they are celebrating the death of the two witnesses. And, and just in their celebration, all of a sudden, they resemble Rachel Maddow on you know, MSNBC after you know, the results of the race start coming in, and all of a sudden, you know, the joy goes to absolute they're wrecked. It's like things get serious in a hurry. They're stunned. They're terrified. What happens? The witnesses are resurrected, and <clears throat> then they are raptured up into heaven just in front of everybody. And to make matters worse, not only does this happen, but there's an earthquake. It destroys a tenth of the city. 7,000 people die. And, uh, and then God says, huh, behold, the third woe is coming. You know? So, so you, you have this group of people celebrating too early, all of a sudden experiencing the agony of defeat. And today, the scene shifts from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory. And we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at an announcement of victory, an acclamation of praise, and thirdly, we're going to look at an assurance of God's salvation. And let me just say this. As we get into the last part of Revelation chapter 11, it is history, future history, it is prophecy that's coming 
Um, but it's more than just academic information. This actually, when you really understand and appreciate what's going on in our text today, you'll understand that it has a profound impact on your life and how you live your life. So, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so we have here an announcement of victory. Keep in mind, that up until this point, well, the chronology of events, the focus has been on earth, and basically it's been taking place during the sixth and the seventh trumpet. God is pouring out his wrath on an unrepentant world. Six trumpet of, trumpets of judgment have been blown with corresponding actions. It's now paused at the beginning of Revelation 11 and mostly through the chapter in Revelation 11. Been on the pause button between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The focus has been on the earth during this time. We've been looking at events that are happening during the seven-year tribulation. Verse 1, we see focuses on the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Verse 2, the last three and a half years of the tribulation uh, period. Um, And then last week, verses 3 through 13, God directs our attention back to the first half of the tribulation period and the focus shifts from the worship at the temple to the worship of two witnesses. All of this focused on earth, but now God hits the play button. It's been paused between the the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now he hits the play button. And immediately what happens is that the focus shifts from the earth up into heaven. So as we read verse 15, we are looking into heaven now and what's going on there as the seventh trumpet uh, sounds. And what happens there is that we see that there's a victory party going on up in heaven. It says there that there were loud voices in heaven. And I don't know about, you know, your party days and what those used to look like and what your past testimony is all about, but my past testimony, there were a lot of parties and there were a lot of loud parties that were in, you know, my, my, you know, BC days, my before Christ days, you know. Now this is a loud party as well, but these loud voices in our text, they are not influenced by alcohol, they're influenced by a different spirit, they're influenced by the Spirit of God, and what we have here is a holy celebration on a massive scale, and everybody is celebrating one singular event, and the event is this, that God has won. That's the perspective. God has won. And so what you have is these loud voices of, of, of cheering, of celebrating what's going on. Yesterday I was watching uh, some, some, uh, an old video. It was from uh, 1988, and it was the World Series between the Dodgers and the Oakland A's, and it was game one. And, and if you're a baseball fan, you know that game because that was the game where Kirk, Kirk Gibson came up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth at Dodger Stadium with the Dodgers down by one run, and Kirk Gibson's got, there's two outs, he's got, he's got two strikes on him, it's a, it's a full count, basically, and it's just what's going to happen, they got a runner on first, 
and the dude knocks it out of the park. And the place, Dodger Stadium, loses its collective mind. It just goes crazy. Just bedlam in the place. Vin Scully's calling the game, and the minute Kirk Gibson hits the home run, and there was drama even in that because he was injured, he couldn't play in the game, and, and, all, and then Tommy Lasorda has Kirk Gibson taken batting practice in the tunnel so the other team can't see that he's going to put him up in this situation. And the guy gets up and he just, by sheer upper body strength, he's got his legs are trashed and injured, and sheer upper body strength knocks it out. Everybody loses their mind. The place explodes. It's, it's, it's like a, a, a jet engine taken off. And Vin Scully just stops talking. And for over a minute, all you listen to is just the stadium losing their mind, cheering. And you imagine that on steroids and, and you know, multiplied, by infin- multiplied by infinity. And that's what we have here is just this, this absolute thrill of victory that's taking place. Now notice what they're celebrating. This is key. Notice it there at the end of verse 15. It says, they say, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now that phrase, have become, uh, is what Greek grammarians refer to as a proleptic aorist. And so, of course, we know what that means. We can move on. But um, the the proleptic aorist, here's what it means. It, It describes a future event that is so certain that it's spoken of as if it has already happened. A future event so certain it's as though it's already happened. Unlike our most recent election, which seemed so certain, but then turned out so much differently than people expected. Or like if you look back at verse 10, <clears throat> where the world is celebrating the death of the two witnesses, and it seems like, you know, there's this, this certain outcome, and all of a sudden, you know, God pulls a rabbit out of a hat, which is what he delights to do, and now everybody's like, you know, they're left just shocked with what's happening. Unlike that, no, what, what is described here is, hey, this event is absolutely certain, take it to the bank. Now, again, listen... Of course, there's still a lot of events that have to take place on the earth. I mean, we, there's still seven bold judgments that need to be poured out. There's still wrath. There's still war coming. There's still Armageddon coming. And so there are a lot of events that need to play out. But from heaven's perspective, they say, hey, take it to the bank. God wins. This is a victory party. And it's as if it's already happened, their celebration. So guaranteed uh, and so sure. Now, major important points of application for us right here. And, and, and here's what I would say is the first major point of application. If you're taking notes, put it on the screen, you can write it down. Number one, you don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms. You do not have to accept victory on Satan's terms. Notice again there, Verse 15, it says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Listen, remember, Satan had offered these kingdoms to Jesus previously, didn't he? He'd offered him victory on his terms. Satan offered Jesus victory on his own terms, right? What, did he, what were his terms? 
We read about it in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 4.9. Again, it tells us, the devil took him, speaking of Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you, here it is, my terms, if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this is critically important because this is precisely what Satan does with us, is that he offers us victory on his terms. He says, hey, you know what? You don't have to wait for marriage to, 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 to hook up with somebody. You don't have to wait to do that. And so, so, you know, he offers us victory on his terms. Hey, if it feels good, do it. Knock yourself out, baby. Do whatever floats your boat, man. That's, that, that, that is, you know, what, what happens between two consenting adults ain't nobody else's business. Do whatever you want. And so there's this, this pervasive attitude that basically says, well, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, you know, why would I marry somebody I hadn't slept with? Like, I mean, you know, that's just crazy. I, you know, you don't buy a car without taking it for a test drive, for crying out loud. And so there's this attitude that permeates. Why? Because Satan has got the earth to buy in on victory on his terms, right? Give you another example. You, you, Satan would say to you, you don't have to wait for the Lord to avenge you. And we're going to be, read in a little bit that, you know, hey, God says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. And Satan goes, ah, come on. You just, you take vengeance any way you like, man. Somebody, somebody hits you on the right cheek, man, you hit, them, you, you hit them on the left with a baseball bat, man. You just go for it, you know. Or, you know, Satan will lie to us and he'll say, hey, hey, victory on my terms. You, you don't have to wait for God to bless your finances. Hey, why don't you cheat on your taxes? Hey, you know what, I'll tell you what, why don't you take some shortcuts in your business, you know, you know, you took a bath on this project, you're kind of in the red over here, but you know what, if, um, if you charge this project over here for some of the materials that you need over here to finish this project, well, you just might finish up in the black here. So just add that on to somebody else's, pro, you know, invoices or, or, you know, hey, you know what, you, can, you, you paid $1,000 for materials, but nobody will know if you charge 2000 for materials. Jack it up. Go ahead and do this. And, and, and so Satan will say, look, victory on my terms. You, you don't have to wait for God to bless your finances. You can take the shortcut. And Satan's always trying to get us to take the shortcut, trying to get us to cut corners, trying to get us to a place where the instant, the immediate, trumps the, 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 the delayed, the, the, the obedient waiting by faith upon the Lord. And so, so we, we, we have the, the, this issue, man, Satan wants us to give us victory on his terms. You want to give Jesus victory on his terms. You know what? I'll give you all the kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, uh, that ain't going to happen. I'm not going to bow down. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to have victory on your terms. I'll have victory on my terms. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins in our place. He's resurrected, uh, rises up to heaven. He, he's at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and the Bible says that there Jesus received his inheritance. You look at it in Psalm chapter 2. It says, For the Lord declares, I've placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've become your father. 
only ask, here it is, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. So you don't have to accept victory on Satan's term. That's the first point of application. Second, second thing, second point of application, listen, you don't have to accept defeat on Satan's terms either. You don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms. And listen, you do not have to accept defeat on Satan's terms. Now, let me, let me explain what I'm, what I'm saying here with an illustration. My granddaughter, Willow, she's my oldest grandchild, the oldest of eight. Number nine's on the way. And so Willow, when she was, a, when she was the only grandchild, when she was eight months old, uh, she, she was... Um, she took her sweet time, I guess is a, is a polite way to say it. She's eight months old, and she still has not rolled over, right? Guys are like, I don't get it, whatever. And, and moms are like, we get that. That's, that's late. She should have rolled over. Well, so, so here's the thing. She, so Megan, Ben, at this time was deployed uh, in the Navy, and Megan was, was staying with us, and, and, I, and I'm there. And I'm like, let's get this kid to roll over for crying out loud. And I'm in my office, and, and I go, just let's lay her down on the floor, and, and we'll encourage her, you know, start enticing her with little different things to reach for, maybe, you know, roll over or whatever. So I lay her down on the floor. What's Willow do? She just, <laughs> she just wilts, just fall, falls down. She just collapses. She, not any motivation whatsoever. And my, my, what I submit to you is this, that Willow was just like some Christians, she faced a little bit of opposition, and she just gave up, right? And, and so what happens is you have people that, hey, you know, Satan wants us to accept defeat on his terms. Here's how it goes down. You're in a relationship, friendship, whatever it is. Let's say friendship. You got a, you got a good friend. And then you have some sort of conflict because you're human, and humans con- have conflict. It's inevitable. And what happens, what Satan does is he wants you to, to accept defeat on his terms. So the relationship starts to, to, to be challenged, starts to have some problems. There starts to be some friction there. And what Satan says is, write that thing off as a loss. Just, you know, just, just bail, man. You're done with that friendship. I was looking for a friend when I found you. I'm done, you know, and, and we're through and, and hit the road kind of thing. And so, so this is an area where Satan wants you to accept defeat on his terms. He'd rather have you trash the relationship. Now, let me go off on a tangent here for a second. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Now, you know where I'm going, right? Matthew chapter 18, there in verse 15, Jesus is talking about our relationships. He says this, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, what's the the object focus of that verse? What's What's the goal of that verse? Gain your brother. Gaining your brother, not confronting your brother, that's the method, but the motive is to gain your brother. That's the idea. Now, 
Christians know this verse. And most of them don't follow this verse. Why? Because it's easier for me to talk about you than to talk to you. That's why. If this is difficult to do. But, and I'll grant you that. By the way, you don't, if, if, if you have something, or if your brother has sinned against you, you've got something against your brother, listen, you don't necessarily have to go to confront him. This, doesn't, this isn't saying in every situation you absolutely have to go to your brother. Here's, the, here's when you don't. Your brother has sinned against you, and you go, you know, Jesus told me to turn the other cheek. I'm just going to let this go. I'm going to forgive him, and I can forgive him from my heart. I'm just going to turn him over to you, Lord, and, and, uh, and, and I can do that. And if you are able to just turn the other cheek and say, okay, I'm going to turn him over to you, Lord, then praise the Lord. You don't have to do this. But if you go, this is, this is making me so angry. This is making me so upset. And, and maybe even you, you, you're like, I hate conflict. I'll walk 10 miles to avoid a conflict. I'm mad at them, so I'm just going to turn them over to you, Lord. But then, you know, it damages the relationship. You, you wind up, you know, being estranged from them, cutting off the relationship, or just, you know, having, you know, thoughts of them driving off a cliff, or whatever it is. Then God would say, hey, you need to follow Matthew 18, 15. You need to go to them. And you need to pursue reconciliation with them now. Hold that thought. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus is basically, he's, he's talking about the sin of murder. He goes, hey, you know, that, you know, it, as you, you might imagine, he's against it, right? He, he said that that's not cool. Um, but, but, he's, but then he goes on, he says, you know, if, if you hate somebody, then, then you've murdered them in your heart. So, so he's dealing with that, and he, so he says in verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift before the altar and go your way first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to see here what's being said. What, Matthew chapter 18 is, if you have something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go, go to him. And whose responsibility is that? It's yours. Matthew chapter 5, you're going to, before the Lord, to make your offering to the Lord. And all of a sudden, you remember, well, your brother has something against you. And, and who does the Lord say, it, whose responsibility is it to go to the brother? It's yours. It's yours. Both, both sides. If, if I've got something against him, I've got to go to him. And if he's got something against me, I've got to go to him. Why does God do that? Because he puts the burden of responsibility on both parties in any situation. Because what we have a tendency to do is we say, you know what? That guy's an idiot, and, and I'll think about forgiving him when he comes to me and, and, and he admits that he's wrong. God's like, no, it doesn't work like that. He's got something against you that's come to your attention. You think it's ridiculous, but he's got something against you. You need to go to him. You need to work it out. Why? Because God's more invested, more interested in the thing, in, in the relationship than the thing that divides us. 
That's the deal. God is more interested in the relationship than that thing that divides us. And often what we do relationally is we accept defeat on Satan's terms and we just trash the relationship rather than doing what God says we need to do. Let me give you another example. Maybe somebody has hurt you. They've wounded you. And you need to forgive them. And you're, and you're in a place to where you're like, man, it is, it is just too, I, it's just too raw. Like, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that. So rather, what you do is you hold on to the anger and you hold on to the bitterness, which, by the way, has been likened to taking poison to get even with your enemy because it just hurts you and harms you. But the enemy's way is, hey, you know what? Accept defeat on my terms. It's too painful to forgive. So, you know, whatever, that thing's trashed and just, just write them off. No, God says, don't hold on to that anger. Work on forgiveness. Or maybe, maybe it's a situation where your life is just one giant pity party and you're the guest of honor, you know? And it's just a constant pity party. It's a constant thing where you, you give up, where you choose to live in defeat, to accept defeat on the enemy's terms. And you just go, I just give up. I'm going to accept defeat. I'm going to live in my defeat. I'm going to doubt God's love for me. I'm going to second guess whether or not God is faithful or not. And, and there's folks that just sort of live in that perpetual, you know, glasses half empty, pity party, accepting this life of defeat. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. He said this. He said, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither, uh, that nothing uh, can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is, in, that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so listen, you don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms and you don't have to accept defeat on Satan's terms either. And so we see here in verse 15, the announced victory. Now we move to an acclamation of praise. Verse 16. And we read, And the 24 elders here in this victory party who sat before God on their thrones, they fell on their faces and they worshipped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. We have here an acclamation of praise. The seventh trumpet uh, has sounded. It opens the final seven bold judgments, which is, are going to bring the full victory of Christ. 
And heaven looks at this victory as a done deal, as a foregone conclusion. And so the elders are worshiping the Lord here. And the first thing they offer praise for is they say uh, there at the end of verse 18, well, it's not the first thing they offer praise for, but they, among the, the things that they offer praise for, it says at the end of verse 18 um, that, that they're, they're, they're praising him because his wrath has come and, and that he should destroy those who destroy the earth. Destroy those who destroy the earth. That's actually a play in the Greek. It's a play on words. And basically it means uh, you're going dis- to destroy the destroyers is what it means. And, um, and, and the idea is that God is going to execute, execute righteous judgment against the wicked. This is, this is one of the reasons... While, why these, these elders are worshiping and praising God and the, just the shouts of victory, one of the, the, the reasons for it is, hey, you know what? You are going to execute judgment against the wicked. Paul said this to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We live in a day and age when there's atrocities taking place in a, in a horrific uh, way and, and to, to a, a, an unimaginable extent. I mean, you watch ISIS videos of, you know, these guys just, just brutally murdering people, wholesale slaughter of Christians and, and others. Um, and, and it's just, I mean, it's unspeakable. It turns your stomach. And, and so... And understanding that, just a little taste of that, we understand the elders' praise of the Lord here, just saying, you know what, you're victorious, and you're going to put a stop to all of that. And you're, going to, and you're going to judge those who have done that, those who are so wicked and so evil, and who have no desire whatsoever to honor you as God, you're going to put a stop to it, and they're going to pay for what they've done. And so these elders are praising the Lord for that. But you know, they're also praising God because what is, what is this here? There's a promise of righteous judgment and reward. Not just for the wicked, but also for the righteous. They say, you know, uh, the, your wrath has come, right? Uh, and, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that, listen, here it is. You should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. See, what we have in view here is God's promised reward of the saints and his promised judgment of those who reject him. And so we have reward and wrath and the promise of both. So what is in view here is the judgment of, of uh, Revelation chapter 20, which is known as the great white throne judgment, where God's going to judge the wicked. And we also have the judgment of the righteous, known as the judgment seat of Christ, which we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's start with the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, what you need to understand, the, the great white throne judgment spoken about in Revelation chapter 20 and actually in view here at the end of verse 18 that God should destroy those who destroy the earth, that is where God judges the unrighteous. 
But the other judgment that is in place here, that it's in view here, is the judgment seat of Christ when he says that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints. And, and the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of, of um, rescue, but it's a judgment of reward. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if It's not that at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus is judging whether or not you're going to be saved. That's already been settled by the very fact that you go to the judgment seat of Christ, which is also known as the mercy seat. That means that you have received mercy. How do you receive mercy? By confessing that you're a sinner by nature and by choice. The Bible says that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. And on your best day, you're the worst blow it that deserves hell and damnation. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the thing that we earn for our actions, is death. Speaking of eternal death. And separation from God. So, so, so the, we need a Savior. We, it's like, you know, you take a boat from here to Catalina. That thing goes down halfway and you start swimming. And the guys on the boat start swimming with you. And if you drowned right there, and then maybe you make it 100 yards off the pier at Avalon and you drown. What's the difference? You all drowned. You all needed somebody to save you. That's the picture of Christ. We need to be saved. We need to say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. I believe you rose again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death. I believe that you give me eternal life by confessing my faith in you, that you paid the penalty that I couldn't pay. That is rescue. Well, the judgment seat of Christ is not about rescue. That's already been settled. It's about reward. And here's the thing. The Bible says that our works are going to be judged by by Jesus at at the judgment seat of Christ. And they're going to go through and they're going to be judged and they're going to go through as as through fire. And and some of our works are going to go through as, as, you know, wood and hay and stubble. It's just going to go through the fire and be consumed. And others of our work is going to go through as gold and silver and precious stones. And that's going to be able to endure and go through the fire and be found to be you know, worthy and, and all. And so the, the idea here is that there's some things in your life that God's not going to reward you for. That, 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 you know, there are things that are going to go through and he's like, you get no reward for that. You don't get any reward for that. Oh, but Lord, I went to Australia on a missions trip to honor you. And, and the Lord will say, no, I know you're hard. And you went to Australia because you wanted to go surfing. Had nothing to do with a missions trip. That just happened to be the excuse through which you went. And so the people who sent you their support so you could go on a surfing trip, I'm going to bless them because they gave it with a right heart. But you just went because you wanted a surfing trip. Wood hay stubble goes through. No reward for that whatsoever. But God also sees, and he, and he says, you know what? I saw, you know, when you gave that cup of water to, to that little kid in my name, when, you, when you, know, you gave clothing to that person who was naked, when you went to visit that person who was in prison, or whatever it is, God will see it all. He'll know it all. And so what is in view here is that there are going to be those who God judges through the judgment seat of Christ, and God says, I'm judging your works, and there's going to be those who God judges that, hey, you're going to judge those who destroyed the earth. And this is in accordance with Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. 
Two things to consider there. The Revelation chapter 20, when it talks about the great white throne judgment, it says basically who gets judged there is the people who've rejected God, and they're judged according to their works. And there's two sides to that coin. There's the side of the coin that we've talked about here, we've frequently talked about, where people, when I ask them, hey, how do you know you're going to heaven? Uh, it's not uncommon for me to, peop- to encounter people who consider themselves Christians, but who really are trusting in their own good works. And so the, the answer will be, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Okay, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because, you know, my good works outweigh my bad works, because I keep the Ten Commandments, because I'm not a bad person, whatever the fact may be. And I'm like, well, well, if you think that's the criteria for heaven, then you're not trusting in Christ, you're trusting in yourself. And if you want to be judged by your works, that's a really bad idea. Because your righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord, the Bible says. And your works will earn you a one-way ticket to hell. So you don't want to trust in your works. Now that's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin of those who are judged according to their works are going to be those people who have flat out rejected God and their works were evil and their works were, you know, they were destroying the earth. Now, by the way, when it says, I will destroy the destroyers, I will destroy those who destroy the earth, this isn't God saying, hey, if you didn't drive a Prius, I'm going to destroy you. If you didn't go green, I'm going to destroy you. It doesn't have to do with, you know, environmental stuff. This is talking about those who have flat out rejected God and who have, have lived their life in opposition to God. God says, those folks, I'm going to judge as well. And so the elders are praising God because he reigns in righteousness. He, he, he has righteous wrath, and he brings a righteous reward. And so the elders praise him for that. And, 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 and so we see an announced victory, we see an acclamation of praise, and we close right now with an assurance of God's faithfulness. See it there in verse 19. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. The ark of the covenant is the symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace upon his people and vengeance upon his enemies. And and the, the ark, in, when we originally see the ark of the covenant, it, it, God instructs the Israelites to build a, a box. The, this box is the ark, right? And, 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 and it's not the thing that they build, it's what it symbolizes. What God de- does is he says, hey, in Exodus 25, he says, have the people make an, uh, an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. And then he goes on to instruct Moses uh, to overlay it with pure gold, to you know, put four gold rings and the you know, golden-covered uh, poles that will go in there as handles for the transporting of it. And then he says on the top of this ark, he says, make a cover out of pure gold. And, and this cover is called the mercy seat. And there at the mercy seat, this is the place where the high priest would sprinkle blood from the sacrifice seven times on the day of atonement. And what it is, is it's a picture of Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is why it's called the mercy seat of Christ. And so, so the, that's the picture here. And God said this to, to the Israelites. He said, and there I will meet with you, and I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And so the ark was the centerpiece of Israel's worship because, listen, it represented the presence of God. It was a representation there of God's covenant to redeem man through Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 11. We see heaven opened and we see this ark of the covenant. We see this covenant of God. And, 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 and so the, the idea that you've got the mercy seat where God will meet with, you know, with pe- people will meet with God. God meets with his people and they receive his mercy through Jesus Christ. But for those, listen, who make themselves an enemy of Jesus Christ, the ark is the centerpiece of battle. And, and, and here is the, the idea as we close. The idea is this, God is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. If you place yourself in a place where, hey, my faith is in Jesus Christ and I'm going to walk in his victory, listen, you will have reward. But, but, but if you set yourself against God, then you're going to have his wrath. The decision is yours. The choice is yours. You live a life of victory or you live a life of defeat. Either way, listen, God will be faithful. God will be faithful.